Please stand by. We'll be streaming live soon. 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 Good morning from Rick Bonfa Ministries. Uh, this is what, July 28th? And um, want you to know that we are praying for you. We thank you that you watch our Bible study. Um, we don't have our band with all the music and stuff. If you've been watching the last few days, we've been having a good time. Uh, we'll start up again rocking and rolling on Thursday morning unless I bring my guitar in here tomorrow. But today, um, Rick Bonfim and John Dunn are in a car presently driving north to Tennessee, and they're going to have a meeting in Livingston, Tennessee with Pastor Craig and Tina Green and Dino and Catherine Cates and their congregation there. So we're praying that they have a powerful evening in the Holy Spirit tonight in Livingston, Tennessee. So I'm here with Matt Fallick, with Kathy Fallon, and Cindy Walker, and we're going to continue our Bible study, um, picking up where we left off <coughs> in John 18. Now, last week, John Dunn started us out in John 18, and I don't know if you heard his Bible study, but it was a really good one. And um, I just wanted to just reiterate sort of to launch us off here, what some of the things, the points that John made, John Dunn made about John 18. This is where Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas comes to betray him. And John asked us some critical questions. He said, why is it important for the gospel writer John to state that Jesus knew prior to the events that would happen to him? It was because he did this by choice. He knew exactly what was going to happen. <clears throat> um, and then John Dunn quoted us Romans 5.19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. So Jesus had already made a premeditated decision to obey what the Father was asking of him. So when the time came for that event to take place, it was already settled in his heart what he was going to do. And then John Dunn um, exhorted us that as Christians today, we have to make some premeditated decisions. Um, obedience doesn't necessarily remove suffering from our lives. In fact, obedience can bring suffering. There are many Christians around the world today who are suffering mightily because they chose to follow Jesus and chose to be baptized and chose to obey him. So this idea that if I follow Jesus, then life should just be all butterflies and roses and there's no suffering, that is not a biblical concept. Jesus knew he was going to suffer. It was premeditated um, that he 
submitted. And it says in Hebrews that he became a son because of his obedience. Even our Lord Jesus Christ had to obey. Um, okay, so that's, that's where we started out in John 18. And this chapter, um, <clears throat> this event of Jesus, the night of Jesus' arrest, it was about midnight. And I'm going to read from my mom's favorite little Bible devotional, Haley's Bible Handbook, because I like the way they sum things up sometimes. It was about midnight. The Roman garrison, consisting of a cohort of soldiers, about 500 or 600. Now imagine this. Jesus in his little garden, the place where he would usually withdraw, away, get out of the city of Jerusalem, go down the Kidron Valley, go up to the Mount of Olives, and go into this little quiet garden. Here comes 500 or 600 soldiers with torches. And yeah, just, just picture that. Led by the chief captain with emissaries from the high priest, evidently thinking they were on a dangerous mission, were guided by Judas to the place of Jesus' retreat. As they streamed out of the east gate, having been in Jerusalem, having sat many times in the garden of Gethsemane on the, on the Mount of Olives, I can, I can picture that. And just streaming out of the, the east gate, out of the Antonia Fortress there, <clears throat> down the Kidron Road with lanterns, torches, and weapons. They were visible from the garden where Jesus was. As they approached, Jesus, by his unseen power, caused them to fall to the ground. That's scriptural. John read that to us last week. To make them understand that they could not take him against his will. To make Jesus' identification certain, Judas pointed him out by kissing him. And that's where we pick up. So, um, I'm in verse 12 then. So, the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. So they had, they had fallen to the ground, <laughs> but apparently they got back up. Then Simon Peter went to cut off the, the ear of the high priest slave, and Jesus performed his last miracle of healing. But apparently they collected themselves again, they surrounded Jesus, and they bound him. And verse thir- 13, And led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So doing a little research on this, Annas had been high priest from the year 6, 86, until he was deposed by Rome in 15 AD. He was followed by his son Eleazar, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, and four more sons as high priest. So, but even though Rome had deposed Annas, the Jews continued to recognize his authority. So they took Jesus to Annas first. They seemed to, he was probably the head of the Sanhedrin, and they, um, they just saw him as their greater spiritual authority, even though Caiaphas was actually the high priest that year. Why was, why was Caiaphas the high priest? because he had been appointed by Rome. The office of the high priest was the appointment of the Roman authorities. Does that scare you? Matt, a little bit? Yeah, a large, tyrannical government determining who has spiritual authority and influence over the people. Does that scare you a little bit? Yeah, it should. Now, 
if Jesus was only a historical figure, if he was only a good man, a teacher, or the head of a worthy movement, as I read in the blog of a United Methodist pastor's wife just yesterday, that he was the head of a worthy movement. (laughs) If that is all he was, this would be very scary, that he was being led to a person who has spiritual authority that has been given to him by a large tyrannical government. But the fact is, Jesus is more than a historical figure, a good man, or the head of a worthy movement. And we're going to bring that. Now remember, he's being led to the high priest. So that's why I'm tying in these scriptures from Hebrews that Cindy's going to read for us. Um, <clears throat> Hebrews 8, 1 through 6, if you start there, Cindy, please. Think about Jesus. As she reads this, think about Jesus being led before Annas, recognized by the people as their high priest, and Caiaphas, appointed by Rome as the high priest. Hebrews 8, 1-6. Yes. The point of what we are saying is this. We do not have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, and who serves in the sanctuary of the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve in a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was born, when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is a superior is superior to theirs of the covenant of which he is mediator. He is superior to the old one and was granted a stronger and better covenant. Okay, then go over to Hebrews ten, nineteen, please. Nineteen through twenty three. Alright, and then finally, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens to the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Amen. So Hebrews is full of explaining to us that Jesus is our great high priest. So he is being led to the house of Annas and Caiaphas, 
um, two men appointed by Rome or recognized by the Jews as spiritual authority. But Jesus Christ, in this action, in this very action that they are, that is happening here at midnight in Jerusalem, is about to become the only and the great high priest for Annas, for Caiaphas, for every man, woman, and child. He will be both the sacrifice for sin and the priest who offers the sacrifice. And I'm going to read one final uh, Hebrews passage, um, Hebrews 5, 5 through 10. I just was, when I was studying yesterday, I was like, I just don't know which one of these to pick, so I had to pick them all. They are so good. Listen to Hebrews 5, verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he, meaning God, the Father, who said to him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Just as he also says in another passage, Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So 500 to 600 soldiers rushing out, coming across the Kidron Valley, rushing up to the garden seems scary. You know, being arrested by them, um, being led to the high priest recognized by Rome, the high priest recognized by the Jews, all that seems scary. But who is really in control? Jesus, yes. Yes. So going on, just, I mean, just stay with me. This, there's just so much that I found here. Yesterday I was just blown away. Look at verse 14. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. This took place back in John 11. So turn there, if you would. If I can hear the rustling of pages, that always makes me happy. John 11 49 through 53, it says, But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Now this he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. Did I read that right? We're talking about Caiaphas here, right? (laughs) He prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, meaning the whole world. God so loved the world. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So Caiaphas... He was an evil man, right? He was a proud, arrogant man. We can tell even by the way he talks to his his colleagues. He he says, um, you know nothing at all. You know, <clears throat> He's full of himself. But he was in the office of high priest, and God overruled what he said. God used him to prophesy. 
His words were true in a way he could not imagine. Prophesying is the impartation of divinely revealed authority. That's a part of prophesying. Prophesying. The impartation of divinely revealed truth. So Caiaphas prophesies here that Jesus' death would would be for the nation, not meaning that he was going to remove political trouble and preserve the nation because we know just 40 years later in 70 AD, the nation was destroyed. But he would... His death would be for the nation in terms of taking away the sins of those who believed in him. So this this events that we're reading in John 18, Caiaphas had already prophesied would happen, that Jesus would die for the nation. Not to avoid political problems, but to bring salvation. So here's a challenge for you today. Can you believe that God can and God will use evil people with a wicked agenda to bring about his redemption and his purposes? Kathy? One of the things I think we were reading something about Caiaphas, and I think we were talking about how telling us that he prophesied that Jesus will die for the nation. Well, it is so different than for us. We see the mainstream media. We see our government. I'm, I'm talking about governors and mayors and just, you know, especially in these places like Seattle and Portland where they're just allowing insanity and violence and wickedness to go on. We see even church leaders um, in authority can <laughs> We can become totally distressed. We can become angry. We can become fearful, defeated when we see people in high places making very awful decisions. Um, But I want to assure us, I want to assure you today that just as God and Jesus were in control of this situation, even to the point that that God had caused Caiaphas, the high priest, to prophesy these events, I want to assure you today brothers and sisters, that God is in charge. God is in charge. Um, Kathy, you have some scriptures to read. John 16.33, Colossians, and then another John. John 16.33, please. These things I have spoken to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Next one, is 16. Next one would be Colossians 2.15. Colossians 2.15. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Mm-hmm. Having spoiled? Is that what it says? That, that's what it said. My, in, I remember it's in King James. Um, yeah, and in my translation it says disarmed. Oh, I 
Yeah, I like that. Taking away their weapons. On the cross, he disarmed Satan. He took away his weapons. Mm-hmm. Okay? And then John 16:11. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Okay. So the Holy Spirit, that's what's where Jesus says the Holy Spirit comes to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Of sin because they do not know me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father. And of judgment because the ruler of this world has already been judged. These are the words of Jesus. And then I'm going to read Luke 21:28, where he assures his disciples. He tells them all the things that are going to happen in the end of times. And he says, when these things begin to take place... Straighten up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. So Jesus stated many times, Satan is already defeated. Satan has already been defeated at the cross. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Satan is already defeated. What we're experiencing today, you know, with this COVID stuff and then all of the uprisings, the protests continue, the dissension, the division, the anger. It's, it feels new to us. We're going, gosh, everything's gone crazy. But there's nothing new. <laughs> this is not the first time the world has been in such turmoil. And again, as I was studying yesterday and just looking at Jesus, how he handled this situation um, that on that midnight as all these soldiers came and then bring him to such an intimidating place as the place of the high priest um, and thinking how he was so in control. Um, what we're experiencing, like I said, is, not, is nothing new. Habakkuk experienced it. And so I turned over to there and just got caught up in Habakkuk. So I want us to spend a few minutes here. If you can find Habakkuk, you just kind of go backwards from... Here at Matthew, you go to Malachi, the Italian prophet. Then you go to Zechariah. And then you're at Haggai. And then you're at Habakkuk. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. <clears throat> now, the context of the, the prophet, the book of the prophet Habakkuk, is that the Babylonians are about to make their first siege of Jerusalem. They made three sieges 605 BC. 597 B.C. and then 586 B.C. And um, they took Israel into exile. They became the superpower of the era, um, the whole known world. And basically they were the new world order for that period of time until they were defeated by the Medes and Persians. So the prophet Habakkuk, he was feeling like many of us today. He, He sees the Babylonians bearing down upon God's chosen land, God's chosen people. He sees this horde, this violence, this of this um, pagan evil nation about to come and sweep away their way of life and their, their homes. And he's saying, how can this happen? How can violence and law-breaking and injustice just run rampant? And it seems like God is doing nothing about it. So that's where we find Habakkuk. That's what's in his mind as the book opens. Well, I think many of us are kind of feeling exactly like Habakkuk felt. If you turn on the news, you watch it, and you just go, How, God? Why? Where? What are you doing about it? <coughs> so the, the short book of Habakkuk is a conversation between the prophet and God. And in verse 1, we have Habakkuk. 
He says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry out to thee, Violence, yet you do not save. In verse 5, then God answers the prophet. He says, Look among the nations, observed. Be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days. You would not believe it if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that means the Babylonians, the fierce and impetuous people who march through the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Does this sound like what you just watched on the news last night or what? But God says, I'm the one raising them up. So that's his answer. So then verse 12, we have Habakkuk speaking again. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, has appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Meaning, God will sometimes use his enemies to deal with his people. God will use the enemies of God to deal with the righteous. Matt, do you need to say something? Okay. So then God speaks again. We get over to chapter, we're in chapter 2. And God speaks um, <clears throat> in verse 3. For the vision is for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. But the righteous will live by faith. So God is assuring Habakkuk, my promises are sure. My word is true. It may not seem like it's coming about the way you want it or when you want it, but the, the vision is for the appointed time. Though it tarries, wait for it. Put your confidence in me. I will not let you down, regardless of what is happening all around you. Um, then in, in verse 14, God assures Habakkuk, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Brothers and sisters, this is as true then as it was when God spoke it. This is going to be the outcome of everything we're seeing today. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Keep your eyes on that. Okay, now just um, two more here. In verse 3, Habakkuk speaks again. Um, He begins to pray. It says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. O Lord, I have heard the report about thee, and I fear. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So he begins to say, Okay, Lord, I understand we're going to have to go through this, but but just please have mercy on us, even as you are using our enemies to punish us. Because that's what he was doing. He was When God sent Israel into Babylon, it was because they kept worshiping other gods and worshiping other gods and then worshiping other gods. And basically he said to them, You like other gods so much? I'll send you off to a land that worships other gods and see how you like it. And maybe then you'll want to come back to me. 
God's judgment is always His mercy. If He's judging, it's because He's trying to bring us back to Him. If He's judging America right now for killing babies and for departing from our godly roots, it's because He's trying to say, do you like it? Do you like a godless society? Come back to me. Do you like a lawless, violent, <laughs> unjust society? Where there's no, then, then just have it. Have it for a while. See how you like it and maybe you'll turn back to me. His judgment is always his mercy because he wants us back. So Habakkuk is starting to see this. He's like, all right, I understand the reason for your wrath, but remember mercy. And finally, he then decides his position, where what the position he's going to take up as the Babylonians are bearing down upon them, as Antifa is bearing down on us, as mainstream media and liberalism and all the injustice is bearing down on us, he decides, here's the position I'm going to take. Um, it starts in verse 16 of chapter 3. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hind's feet and made me walk on my high places. That's his conclusion. That's where he decides, I'm going to stay as all this comes, comes down. How could Jesus, going back to John 18, how could he face a mob of soldiers, go to the house of Annas and Caiaphas, be beaten, accused, mocked, scourged, killed, with such peace and such dignity and such humility and even joy? It's because he knew his father was using his enemies to prophesy and to fulfill the prophecy that these events are happening that he might be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These events are happening that he may do what he came to do. Amen? So how can we face evil, unrest, violence, injustice? We need to have the same conversation Habakkuk had with God and invite God to open our eyes the way he did to say, here's what I'm really doing. I'm in charge. I'm doing this for a purpose. And we need to also look upon Jesus and believe in his promise to us that he has already overcome the world. Amen? So be at peace. I hope this has encouraged your heart today. Um, go back and read Habakkuk and, and have a conversation with God like he did and see if, if God can assure you that he really is in control. We just need to make up our minds like Habakkuk did where we're going to stand. Amen. Thank you. We'll see you tomorrow.
brilha a luz que é no do meu viver. 